and we got to get inside of a T-80 tank and uh, the Russians were very friendly and they said, hey, let's go for a ride. And so I, I had my camera going the whole time. So I got the acoustic signal of the of the tank and it was just a fun time. Um, they knew we were Americans, obviously. So they wanted to show off their vehicles. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Bill was a U.S. Army intelligence analyst. In 1986, he was assigned to the Order of Battle Branch Soviet section, where for three years he studied the Warsaw Pact armies, working closely with the U.S. military liaison mission in Berlin, which led to a transfer there in November 1989. Stationed in Potsdam, he became an Order of Battle analyst and participated in a handful of collection tours with the US military liaison mission as a backseater. He tells of the little-known history of US MLM during this period and the continued monitoring of Soviet forces in Germany post the opening of the Berlin Wall and even post-reunification to the Soviets' eventual withdrawal in 1994. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave written reviews in Apple Podcasts or share us on social media. By telling your friends, you can really help the podcast grow. And if you can spare it, I'm asking listeners to contribute at least three US dollars per month to help keep us on the air. Larger amounts are welcome too. Plus, you get that sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a monthly financial supporter and you bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. So back to today's episode. We welcome Bill to our Cold War conversation. Why did you join the U.S. Army initially? <laughs> um, I guess I came from a, from a quasi-military family. My father had been... Uh, he did his four years in the, in the U.S. Army in the 1960s, and he was in intelligence. Um, my grandmother uh, was a, a civilian who worked for the U.S. Navy in intelligence. My great-grandfather was, um, was a doughboy in, in the First World War and fought in France. Um, there was never any pressure on me to do it, but I was just drawn to it at an early age, and I was extremely interested in intelligence. And... Um, uh, in the, the mid '80s, um, there was there were several programs to, if you enlist, they will help you for for your university studies later on, um, assistance, financial assistance, and that was like the big draw for me. So, when you're 18 years old and you don't really want want to go to the university immediately, but you still want to do something, it just seemed to be the right fit at, at the moment. Right, and could you apply directly into? intelligence or did you have to go another um, route you were early, before you enlist they give you a series of exams and based on your scores they I guess they measure your intelligence and based on your score the number of, of positions open to you was limited so if you had a high score obviously a wide range of positions low score um, the range of, of positions was much much limited 
Um, so I went into it. It's easy to go into intelligence harder. It's much harder to really be put in a, in a position where you can apply what you learn and to work the job. Um, that was the key to, to be l- luck, to be, um, to be lucky, to actually be assigned somewhere where you could be involved in all this. Um, a, a small percentage of, of people who were in intelligence could never, ever get involved in, in this kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So in May 86, you're assigned to the U.S. Army in Europe. Can you tell me about that role and, and what um, were the aspects of your work there? Yes. I, I arrived in May of 86. I was assigned at the U.S. Army headquarters in Heidelberg, um, U.S. Army Europe headquarters at the office of the Deputy Chief of Staff for Intelligence. And um, luck of the draw, I was assigned to the um, to the Order of Battle branch in the Soviet section. We had an office um, that was doing the Hungarian army, the Czechoslovakian army, Polish, um, but the biggest was was the Soviet um, section, and I was assigned there. For my first year, I was the NGF, CGF, and SGF Order of Battle Analyst. Um, okay, tell us what those acronyms mean. <laughs> NGF, the, the Northern... Northern Group of Forces, those were the Soviet forces in Poland. CGF, the Central Group of Forces, those were the Soviet forces in um, Czechoslovakia. And SGF, um, Southern Group of Forces, Hungary. Um, Soviets had about uh, two divisions in Poland, five divisions in Czechoslovakia, and four divisions in Hungary. Um, so I just, my first year, I was just the, the order battle analyst, keeping track of um, developments, new um, e- equipment upgrades, training activity, um, just keeping an eye on things, basically. And and how were you tracking the units in those countries? Because the military liaison units were only in East Germany. So how did you get knowledge on their deployments? Right. It was an all-source environment. When we say all-source, that basically means um, human, SIGINT, um, imagery, um, it was primarily satellite and um, radio radio intercepts. Um, right. Also, human sources. I mean, we got reports from from truck drivers who went through um, the DAO, the Defense Attaché Office, uh, in each country. We had a at, at the embassies in every capital. There was a small team of military. People and they would occasionally make some travels through the country, not as intensive intensively as the Allied missions did in East Germany, but they were they would go out and about and, and report on things. But I'd say the biggest source of our information was um, satellite imagery uh, combined with um, a signals signals interception interceptions. Right. Okay. And then after two years on that desk you're assigned to the group of soviet forces germany correct um we had a reorganization i was given the opportunity to keep on doing the groups in a different office with a different team or move over to the gsfg area and i wanted to stay with the people and supervisor and boss that i had um so we had about three or four people on gsfg itself i was assigned to Third Shock Army and uh, 20th Guards Army. GSFG was divided into five, I'd say armies. That's what the Soviets called them. 
an army in East Germany con- consisted of usually four divisions, although there was one army that only had three. So yes, I was this, I was the third shock and twentieth guards army analyst. Third shock and twentieth were more, if you can envision a map in your mind of East Germany, it was they were both in the central area of um, of East Germany. Presumably, you were working quite closely with the U.S. military liaison mission because th- these were in East Germany. Yes, and we still it was an all source environment, so we still got overhead imagery and satellite pictures and the field stations with, with their intercepts of, of radio transmissions. But the missions, yes, um, all three Allied missions um, were out and about uh, day in day out, twenty four seven driving around East Germany, um, seeing what they could observe. And uh, we, re- we did work very closely. We were on the phones with them all the time, um, coming and going. People from that from there would come up to would come down to Heidelberg, and I'd, I and other people would occasionally go up to Berlin to visit them, and we kept in close contact because uh, we were their highest, their next echelon up. Right. And, and so were you sort of like saying to them, look, we've – had seen this on a satellite image. Can you go and have a poke around here for us? Good, great question because that did happen a lot. And if we saw something on satellite, um, it would be classified as top secret. Um, but if the missions saw it uh, among their travels, then we could downgrade it to to just um, just secret. So that was something we would do all the time. We wanted to let people know that, for instance, just a crazy example. Um, a regiment of the 7th Guards Tank Division in Dessau upgraded from a T-64B tanks to the T-80, but we only saw that on imagery. If the mission, one of the missions had been driving in the area and saw all of a sudden T-80s outside the main gates, then we would be able to tell people at the secret level, and therefore we could, we could send that information to a wider audience of consumers. Um, which was very important. So that, that the, the Allied missions played that role a lot for us. Okay, okay. And the the top secret and secret. What what are the differences in 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 that level? Can you give examples of who might have access to top secret versus secret? Um, a top secret code word in, uh, was intelligence derived generally from either satellites or listening posts. Um, the, the information itself was never groundbreaking, but it was more the method of how it, the information was collected. And if it had been gotten out in, in the public domain, in theory, they would be able to take measures to make sure we didn't uh, collect that information again. Right. Understood. And with, with if a liaison mission had actually seen that on the ground, then you could tell other other people and if the soviets got wind of that they think well it was the military liaison unit that saw the t80 right example exactly and um the audience of people who were read on for just for top secret information was smaller um if it was only secret we could release it to other nations perhaps uh the dutch or the belgians things like that information that was top secret we kept much more closely uh didn't share it as much um, so we always wanted to have as much as we could release at, at, at the level of secret so that it could be disseminated to a wider audience. Right. And and presumably, I mean, this was the period that Gorbachev had 
had come into power, was there an obvious move of the Soviet forces to a less offensive posture or not during this period? In March of 1985, uh, just a few weeks after he came to power um, in the town of Ludwigslust in East Germany, a Soviet sentry did shoot and kill a U.S. major of the USMLM, Major Arthur D. Nicholson. Um, There was no evidence that it was a planned attack or anything like that, just more of a, a young NCO all excited to see an American all of a sudden and um, near his tank range, and, and he shot him and killed him. Um, so there was a period of after that where there was negotiations and how we're going to not have this happen again. But from other people who had been there, uh, the stories they told me, the 1970s, uh, the way that the Soviets would harass and treat the Allied missions was a little more harsh than it was in the 80s in general. Right, right, and and so you you then ended up on a a second assignment actually with the USMLM based in Potsdam. What was that like? Um, best time of my life. Um, I decided to stay in the army, and I made sure that as part of my contract, I, I would be assigned there. And I knew people, and they accepted me, and they recommended me to go up there. So I actually reported. <laughs> Uh, to the mission on November 11th, 1989. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. All right. This had been planned months in advance. I was going to report there that weekend. Um, So I missed the fall of the wall by two days, actually. Um, But it was, so I arrived and the wall had just come down and it was like, oh my goodness, how how will this affect what I'm going to do? What's my future going to be? But Things kept on going, like I said earlier, up until unification, 11 months later. Um, the missions kept on touring. We collected information just as usual. The only thing I remember different was that we did stop any targeting of the East German army. That was like immediately stopped after the wall came down, I think, because of the political implications. Um, didn't want that to happen. Right. That, that's interesting because I, d- I did interview a, a Bricksmith driver a few weeks back and they were still targeting the NVA almost right up to unification. Um, I, I distinctly remember that conversation and I rem- I was in a meeting and one of our officers criticized Bricksmith about doing that. Um, the The common conception is it's the americans are are, are the uh, the cowboys out there doing qu- crazy wild things but uh, <laughs> in the mission because the, the bricksmiths had a larger number of passes there was a large larger presence um and the tactics the, the brits used the british used um I, from what i heard the Brit, the british were a little bit more ag- aggressive on their targeting and taking more chances and yes they kept on targeting the east germans after we had stopped doing that Right, right, and and I'm interested to know around that time when the wall opened, what what was the intelligence picture looking like? Was there a worry of civil war in East Germany or the Soviets reacting in some way? The initial reaction was yes. What would the Soviets do? Uh, we know now um, that. Um, 
Gorbachev had passed the word down in October of 89 that um, they were not going to get involved. Uh, we didn't know that at the time. Um, so initially, when the wall did come down, the big question was, what are the Soviet units doing? Are they making preparations to do anything? Uh, the missions confirmed that it was the same as usual, no unusual activity. Um, satellites and, and field stations and the intercept people confirmed no special activity happening. So um, nothing, out of the, nothing out of the ordinary was, was noticed, as I recall. Yeah, no, it's 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 interesting because I mean it's easy to look back on it and think, oh yeah, you know Gorbachev had told them to stay in in barracks, but that that obviously wasn't clear at the time, That's and true. it was quite a fl- fluid situation. That's true. Um, we didn't, and then in the absence of any direction or orders, as a soldier, you just keep on doing what you're doing until you're told not to. Um, so the missions kept on collecting, kept on um, their usual op- operational methods. Right. And I understand you went on uh, a few tours. Yes. Even though I was a, an order of battle analyst, my main job was to um, write, write up reports based on what the tours had seen the previous, uh, previous day or a couple days. Uh, they did allow us desk people to go out on some tours Occasionally, and I do get my chance. This was March of 1990, and it for seven days I lived in the back of a of a Mercedes G wagon. Those were the vehicles that we drove. Um, mm-hmm. I went out for a two or three days with one tour. We came back to Potsdam. The next tour picked me up, and I went out with them. And I stayed basically in the southwestern and the west central part of east germany just driving around units um yeah it was for someone who had spent the the previous you know four years or so um observing everything from a desk um Mm. to actually see this up front was just tremendous you're actually seeing a soviet a company a tank um, company offload their tanks at a train station and roll off into the training area or you're in the middle of a convoy taking down side numbers and VRN numbers, the, you know, the plate numbers on each truck. Yeah. And we actually got chased once or, once or twice by some, by some trucks. We were in an area a little, little too long, I guess, and they saw us. So we got chased out of an area. Um, Tell me a little bit more me. about that, Bill. Um, God, this, it was the town of Letzlingen, um, which was right at the edge of the Letzlinger Haida training area. It was one, probably the largest training area in East Germany where the Soviets were always doing something. And we were at the end of a wood line at the edge of the woods, observing a regiment from the seventh guards tank division. I'm sorry, 10th guards tank division from Alton Gravo. And they were offloading their tanks and the the tour NCO and, Kind of at some point said, you know, we've we, we've been here for a while. Maybe we should move on. I guess his experience was, if you stay in one spot too long, you'll be noticed and they'll be chased away. So the tour officer said, yes, let's go do something else. And um, so we pulled away and went off of a tank trail, and there was a, a Soviet truck coming our way. So we just had to 
turn around and he kept chasing us, kept chasing us, wouldn't, wouldn't give it up. Um, we eventually pulled out of the area, but um, he was definitely coming our way. And there had been incidents where they would ram vehicles or try to try, try to trap us uh, so we couldn't escape. And luckily, my tours didn't have that, but other tours would occasionally have that. And um, if a tour was ever detained, they would bring out paperwork. The officer would be re- um, requested to sign something and the officer would always refuse and there would be negotiations back and forth. And eventually it was a drill. It was the same drill. Um, luckily that never happened, uh, happened to us, but yeah, yeah being chased by, uh, by a Soviet truck. Um, <laughs> it was, it was fun. It was fun. It was fun. It was fun. <laughs> um, it must've been, I, I mean, as you say, I mean, yeah, you would, you were doing a desk job. And then you're you're actually out in the field. I mean, I know you know the the Tom Clancy books are, are Tom Clancy books, but it almost reminds me of that line from uh, Hunt for Red October where he says, "Write a goddamn memo next time." Or, um, <laughs> you know, did did you think in that you know when that truck was bearing down on you that shit this this, this is really um, getting yeah. dangerous? Yeah, even though it was. Post fall of the wall, as I said, you know the same rules of engagement were in place. The same way of doing things, if maybe a little less, slightly less, a provocative on our part. But um, for the Soviet units, frontline units, for them, nothing had really changed. They still did the same stuff. But it was fascinating. Just to, I'll give you another quick, another quick example. I, we were somewhere in. I think it was near um, Ordruf in that part of southwestern East Germany. And it was a little bit more mountainous down there. And we were, we had a high observation point down on a Soviet installation. And the tour officer in the front seat said, Bill, take a look down there and look over to the right. And what do you see? And I looked through the binoculars and I could see a little section of the installation off to it off by itself fenced fenced off and i'm counting there are one two three four five six six tanks and i thought to myself the recon battalion a soviet recon battalion had six tanks and there it was i had always seen that uh, on a satellite picture but then here i was with my own eyes seeing something that i had only seen before on a satellite picture and it was Maybe you have to be an, an order of battle nerd to fully appreciate that, but you're actually seeing something you know that you would write about or see in a, in a handbook, and there it was. You know, the reality of it was right in front of you. Just fast. Yeah, no, I, I can understand that, and I'm sure that the, the listeners will will relate to that because I mean, you know, with, with a lot of people's experience of the Cold War, it was looking at pictures in books, but to for you to actually progress from analyzing satellite photos to actually seeing this stuff in the flesh must have been really really exciting as well and the other big thing that really opened my eyes was seeing the the soviet soldiers themselves and that's something that I, i was not prepared for and what shocked me was the ethnic makeup of the frontline troops in east germany you know i was expecting everybody to be russians but no 
they were Kazakhs and Azerbaijanis and everything else, Armenians. It was just a huge number of Central Asians who were manning the frontline units of GSFG, uh, something that, that I didn't, didn't expect. No, and, and I think this was one of the challenges that the Soviet army had with all these languages involved, because for many of these people, Russian wouldn't have been their first language or even something they were particularly fluent in. That's That was a big problem. I recall reading many things about that, and every now and then you'd see a, a report, intelligence report, um, riots between Kazakhs versus Kyrzaks or um, Armenians versus Azerbaijanis in the units. You'd see that occasionally or hear about it. Um, but yes, the language issue was a problem. And I think that was part of the reason they put so many of them in the front lines of GSFG because they were not expected to survive that long. <laughs> so so the, the front line troops were going to be gone pretty quickly. They were expendable. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. Wow. And and did you have much interaction with any East German civilians while you were on these tours? It would um it would happen, yes. A lot of it would also depend on the tour officer. Um his philosophy of whether he just wanted to hide and hide in certain areas or some officers wanted to wave the flag that we're here and everywhere. Um yeah, I remember stopping at a Gast house. Um, they wanted to get some coffee. Uh, I, of course, never drank coffee and still don't. But it was a nighttime tour, so they wanted to. They stopped at some Gast house somewhere near, um, I, I think, airport somewhere in that area there. And the officer stayed in the vehicle, and the tour NCO and myself went inside. And of course, here we are in our uniforms, and you know, you walk in, and then then a silence. Everybody looks at you. It's like, uh oh. But um, no, I. It's like, one of, it's like one of those westerns when they go into the yes, <laughs> yes. saloon. Yes, <laughs> but I, my German was was competent enough um, at the time, um, and I went over to a table of, of of people who were my age, like younger people, and I asked, "Can I sit down and say hello?" And they, sure. And we just talked about the West and um, what we were doing, and I tried to avoid that question, and but I, but I think they knew what we were doing. With German civilians, most of the time they didn't want to talk, but occasionally, if you spoke German and asked them questions, you know there were some who would be who would open up about things. Or we would ask if we were out and about, maybe a farmer or somebody wandering on the road. Hey, did you happen to see any uh, Russian vehicles drive by in the last few hours or anything like that? That would be something we do. Yeah. And in the main, they were helpful with that, or. Generally, I never received any, I never saw any hostility or anything like that. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. 
Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Um, more just kind of staring and not really sure what to do, but, and that, that, <laughs> that was Germans in general, East or West, uh, not exactly always warm at first, but if you talk to them and get to know them, then things always got warmed up. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess speaking in their own language as well goes, yeah. goes a long way to doing that. The officers would speak uh, Russian and the NCOs w- w- were German speakers generally. Yes. Right. And I, I know that with the British mission, they had an officer, an NCO and a driver. Was that the same setup in USMLM or, or was it just a two-man crew normally? A two-man crew normally. Um, the the NCOs didn't like to be called drivers. If I, I, I made the mistake <laughs> one time doing that and boy, did I, did I <laughs> realize my mistake. They were tour NCOs and there was a tour officer and the tour NCO – would generally be the one if, if they were at an observation point and some vehicles came by, the tour NCO would be the one who would call out the type of vehicle and the tour officer would record the number or the license plate number of the vehicle. Yeah. So the tour NCO was responsible for de- de- determining if it was a BTR 60 versus a BTR 60 command variant versus a BTR 60 NBC variant. And the officer was just there to determine, you know, the number. Now there was some officers who could do that as well, but the skills over time that they acquired were tremendous as well. But generally answer your question, a two man tours for the USMLM um, and with, with the occasional backseater, which is what I was on the tours that I did. The French, I don't know what, and I'll, I'll just say one word about the French. Um, they were doing the same mission, same stuff we were. We shared all our information, but they were off in their own little world. We had very little contact. Um, we actually had more contact with Russians and Germans than we did with the French, to be honest. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, yeah. So, so did they not share any of their, what they saw with uh, you? They shared everything as well. All tours, British and French, as well as the U.S., they all once they crossed back into West West Berlin, they immediately um, stopped at USMLM to write up their um, notes in a report, and that was where they left copies for each other. And of course, it was always in French, so we learned um, we learned military French uh, very quickly with our little dictionaries mm-hmm. next, next to us. But you know, five tanks were seen heading west on Route 45. That wasn't too hard to translate. Yeah, I think my French might be able to cope with that. But anything beyond that, <laughs> that was it. But no, to, to answer your question, now they sh- shared what they saw. We shared with them what we saw. But there never seemed to be any really strong um, desire on the French to, to really push themselves. Or and if they did, we didn't know about it because they were so quiet and never really communicated yeah. much. Well, they were technically weren't part of NATO, uh, were they? They were not, but in Berlin was not technically a NATO area because um, mm. it, it was still as if World War II had just ended. Um, so there was no NATO commands or troops there. It was just the, th- the three powers conducting themselves as if it was 1945 still. Yeah, yeah. So the the three-power control of Berlin ends with unification and – the military liaison 
unit or the US military liaison unit is deactivated. What what happens to it then? Right, right. And we were asking ourselves the same questions. The two plus four treaty was finalized. So we knew then that things were, would cease on October 3rd. And there was, there was uncertainty. We really didn't know for sure that activity would continue. We knew we couldn't continue as we were. Um, the Germans had made it clear that it was their country now. They didn't want the Allied missions conducting a collection of missions. They were afraid of the political implications. They didn't want to be embarrassed to have, you know, they wanted to show that they were in charge. And, and, and to be fair, it was certainly now their country. For the first few months after unification, we just kept on writing reports on in the, the backlog of information we had. I remember myself, I did a training analysis of different units that took a month or so, just collecting information that had been sitting in files that was seen, deemed at the time to be less pressing. So we just went through the old stuff and, and published our reports on things like that. This was also at just the environment that was happening. This was during the Desert Storm and Desert Shield period as well. Desert Shield started August of 90 and Desert Storm January 91. So this was in the middle of all that. So we actually had one or two tour officers who volunteered to go to Iraq and they and they off they went. The tour NCOs, most of them were special forces and they were trying to find jobs back somewhere else. So most of the tour NCOs were the first ones to leave. Now, word had been given that we would try to continue some sort of analysis of uh, the Soviet forces that were still there, and the details were being worked out. So we were on pins and needles for a while. Eventually, we got word that the BND was going to be coming for a visit. So this is the German intelligence services. The Bundesnachrichtendienst, BND, which, um, right, they combine everything into one. Unfortunately, for the Americans, we have so many different organizations that overlap and conflict, and it's just a mess. Uh, the BND, basically just one big organization. I learned later that there had been, been um, a beauty contest, uh, both the British and the Americans pitched um, an offer to the BND. Let's partner up. Uh, let's continue exploiting what we can for the next four years of that long as the Soviets are going to be there. So the BND team came to visit us at the MLM building. Apparently, they also visited um, the Brixmas people. I was told they did not visit the French. The French didn't want to take part. The Germans didn't want to take part with the French, so the French were out of it. Long story short, eventually it was decided that uh, the BND would partner with U the remnants of USMLM. Um, the Germans would provide the operational manpower, meaning German operatives would be the ones to go into, into now eastern Germany. The U.S. side would do the, um, the um, analysis of the information. We had the uh, databases. We had the files. We knew every street corner, every every road where every unit would deploy from. So it was it was um, agreed upon. That's how it would work. 
Um, as part of the agreement, we did, the Germans did specify, and for us, for the Americans, it was not a problem that we would share whatever information gained with, with the British. So eventually, yeah, um, we received a visitor one day, and it was a, a German lieutenant colonel who would be the commander of the German element, and he was given an office in our building. And it was a very, very strange day for many of us. Here we had now, you know, a German in our building. Big day. Yeah. And did did you get the impression that the the BND already knew a huge amount? The BND had, for, for years, had run sources in East Germany. Now, um, that's a different topic for a different podcast as to how effective they were. Um we do know that the Stasi had done a very good job of finding their sources and um, shutting them down. As far as the military analysis part of it, um, when I was in Heidelberg um, at USRA, U.S. Army headquarters, we did have a um, exchange every year with the BND. Uh, we would go down to BND headquarters one year, and the alternate years they would come up to Heidelberg, and we would exchange. Um, information with each other face-to-face on what we learned. The sort of the division of labor was the BND did more of East German Army, um, and we did more of GSFG. We listened more to them when they spoke about the East German Army, and I think they learned a little bit more from us on GSFG. I was I was going to say, obviously, the, the merger of the East, the NVA into the Bundeswehr meant that the Bundeswehr had access to all the sophisticated weaponry that uh, the NVA had. So were you given information on all of all of that weaponry? I remember we did get a T-72 tank from the East German Army. It was sent to one of the American bases there in, in, in Berlin. Part of what we did was to collect and procure technical apparatuses, devices, um, kit, I guess is the British word that was very popular. Um, yeah. Kit. Yeah, I learned that. Yeah. yeah. Kit. Um, if it was East German and it was on a list of items that our um, technical people were interested in, we, w- we would forward it along. But by and large, we were focused on on Soviet, yeah, Soviet stuff. Because presu- presumably, with Desert Storm and the fact that Iraq had been supplied by the Soviets, there was you know quite a lot of interest in the in looking at the capabilities of some of this hardware as as part of the Desert Storm preparations. Correct, and as time went on, and I, I guess we haven't mentioned this, but when when we did. When we did start our cooperation with the BND, our unit name became uh, the Combined Analysis Detachment Berlin. Uh, we called ourselves CAD-B. That's what, that's what we referred ourselves to being. Um, for the Germans, it was um, Operation Giraffe. That was their code word for who we were. Um, but to go back to your question, yes, Um there was a lot of information about, or a lot of requests of for information about the capabilities of um, BMPs, BTRs, and the, the Iraqi army certainly did have uh, 
some of that, some of the same equipment that the East German army and Russian army had, certainly. Mm. Okay. So, so you've got this um, Bundeswehr Lieutenant Colonel in your offices. Right. The, the way it started out was um, the BND office in um, Hanover would send on a Monday, some, a couple teams over. They would, would usually work, work two man teams. So they would, they would report in uh, to our office in Berlin Monday or Tuesday. And because I was one of the few who could speak um, German um, somewhat or passable, at least um, I would, we'd talk about among ourselves, what areas we want them to, to look at. So we would develop a list of, of targets of installations. Um, they had maps. We had maps. We'd show them our maps. We'd say, you know, this installation is here in, in these woods. Um, this is a good road to, to come up around this road over here. Um, the, the, the Soviets can see you more, but so if you go on this road, this would be a better way to do it. So over time, they would kind of adopt some of the ways that we, we did it. We asked them to go out and just determine a level of activity. If you see any vehicles, write down the numbers on the tanks or the trucks. Um, another thing that we continued, and this is something that we did at USMLM, and we tried to have them continue, was um, the collection of, of um, trash documents and papers. At USMLM, we would... Um, target trash dumps. The Soviets were very, very, <laughs> very lax with um, throwing away things. Um, yeah, I hear they were very short of toilet paper. There you go, that too. But even just out of the unit, rather than burn trash or take it to a civilian landfill, they would just in the middle of woods, in the middle of the forest, dump trash because they were the Soviets and the Germans, who cares? Um and over many years, we, we developed a, a way of, of getting that trash, going th- bringing it back to Berlin. We had a team that would um, go through it and read it and translate it for any sort of information that would be helpful. And it became a, a very good source uh, for us over the years. We tried to get the Germans to do the same thing. If you see any trash, pick it up. Um, or we'd say, hey, there's a trash dump to the east of this barracks see if you can uh, find anything in this, in this area. Of course that for a limited time worked. Uh, the B and D teams did have some fake IDs, some fake papers where they were posing as environmental inspectors. So the <laughs> rationale for them to be in this trash dump was they were federal inspectors who were analyzing what was happening. Maybe for the first six months to a year that was successful, but, the German government started to crack down very heavily on the environmental aspects of that. So the Soviets could no longer just dump trash everywhere. Um, so that avenue of, of information uh, dried up um, within a year or so, I'd say at the most. Right, right. Were the Soviets still exercising during this period or were they mainly in barracks? I, my recollection was they were still deploying because – you can't just have an army that stays in the barracks for four years, you know? Um, yeah. They needed to train. I think that was something as part of the 
two plus four treaty. Um, they demanded the right to keep on keep on training because that's what the military has to do. Hmm. It wasn't necessarily at the at the same pace, but if a unit was still in existence, uh, they'd still need to go out and 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 train, and and that meant right. deploying on on rails or you know in convoys to the training area. Yeah, and presumably the permanently restricted areas were lifted as well. Correct. Once the missions disbanded, then um, the PRAs, which we get, the permanently restricted areas, they didn't exist any longer. Right. So basically, you know, for the BND, this was now their country and they could go anywhere. But were the Soviet bases treated as Soviet territory? That was still the case. I mean, the, the Germans couldn't just uh, walk, go to the front gate, and demand to to enter. That that was never the case. Just as in British or American bases in Germany, they they would have to request, you know, to be entered to enter. Um, part of the process, though, or part of the thing that was amazing to see was the a little loosening on the Soviet part. They would hold open houses occasionally. Um, that started happening. We saw in 1991. Um, basically, have a, a a Saturday where they'd open their gates to the towns, local townspeople, maybe a small little Volksfest, just as you know the Americans and the British would all, were, were doing for decades in West Germany. But for them, it was a total total change, and I think they were trying to ad- adapt to the new reality of things. Some places, it was successful other places the germans didn't want anything to do with their um soviet neighbors i should say um and a lot of the open houses that they held were attended by people like myself or you know or the british or um american um, soldiers who wanted to see what was happening inside a soviet base um so there was a general loosening overall but um I mean, a slight loosening, I should say, but by and large, um, the Russians were still protective of, of their property, of their areas. Um, it wasn't like, um, hey, everybody, come on in and be our friends. It was still a little bit um, of a wall between between the Germans and the, and the Russians. And I understand you had some, how can I put it, modified video cameras that you would utilize during those open days as well. Yes, there was a program that had been started right after the end of uh, the Gulf War in Iraq. There was a quite unfortunate, very sad incident of of, um, a friendly fire. Uh, I guess an American jet had destroyed a British tank or or a truck or vehicle with with some loss of life. Um, So a large amount of money was put in into this program to collect Mazint intelligence, M-A-S-I-N-T, which stood for measurements and signatures intelligence. And Mazint was the collection of infrared and and acoustic um, signals and and signatures. Every vehicle has its own heat profile. Every vehicle has its own acoustic profile so you would be able to with a specially modified camera collect how a vehicle sounded or how a vehicle how warm or hot a vehicle was the goal was to create 
electronic data which could be fed into a warhead or a weapon system to determine very quickly if that vehicle was friend or foe. So a lot, a lot of money was spent on that worldwide. And as part of, in Germany, we received some special equipment, modified a Sony cameras. They looked like a Sony camera you could buy you know, at, at, at any store. And we gave some of them to our BND partners um, who would do the same thing. They would go out and about and um, we would get a list of vehicles that our, our national people back in Washington were interested in. We'd say, hey, if you see these kind of vehicles out and about, get the camera going, get as close as you can, take the video, and um, then the tape would be sent back back to Washington for other people to, to analyze. We ourselves, we held, held, held a couple cameras for ourselves, and we actually got into some open houses where they would run some tanks for us. And uh, there was one, one place I, we went to, I think it was Australitz. If my memory serves 16th guards tank division, this was in 93. And um, the person I was with was a air force captain who spoke Russian and we were in civilian clothes. We were just for the day, but um, he had been a former enlisted army member and he was a tanker, so he had experience with tanks. And we got to get inside of a T-80 tank, and uh, the Russians were very friendly. And they said, hey, let's go for a ride. And so I had my camera going the whole time, so I got the the acoustic signal of the of the tank. And it was just a fun time. Um, they knew we were Americans, obviously, so they wanted to show off their vehicles. And did they know that the camera was running? Or yes, not? I was right in front of them. But they again, it was, it was a Sony camera, the big Sony on the side of it. So they thought I was just being being Mr. Yeah. Tourist, taking a neat yeah. picture of a ride in a tank. Um, they didn't know what we had inside the camera that was recording the, the audio and was able to to record it in a way that that could be used later on. Wow! Wow! That must have been quite a thrill to ride in something like that after, again, probably looking at it through binoculars. And, right, uh, right. And then here we are inside the base. We weren't outside. We were inside the base, too. And, you know, yeah. the, that was an, an added thrill for us to just uh, be able, able to able to you know do all that. Yeah. And, and so these BND teams that you were working with, what were they? What was their sort of composition? That were they out just driving in a plane vehicle and just yeah. snooping around, pretending to be environmental inspectors? They would be in, in you know, um, in, in in their vehicles, um, BMWs, Fords, Audis, Opals, whatever. Um, the teams initially were either old guys. These were teams that were. They were going to retire soon because in the beginning we didn't get the, the, the cream of the crop, I think, and the B and D people. Uh, but we got guys who knew how to drive around and not look out of the ordinary. Um, we also got some people right out right, right out of um, B and D school, the intelligence training school, who were going through their first assignment and they were learning too. So we had a good mix of young and old um, uh, for the B and D team. Some of them. Did speak Russian? Not all of them did, um, but there were some, there were enough that that did. If anything ever did happen, um, I do recall one one of the German. He was on his own actually for some reason. I don't know why he was on his own, 
but he did get detained. He was, I guess, showing a little too much interest somewhere. And a Soviet MP officer did stop him and asked him a lot of questions. And I remember him telling us how nervous he was. And um, luckily, his cover story, whatever it was, was was um, a good enough. Uh, and he was let go. But he said he was threatened. I, I do remember that. He said he was threatened by the, by the Russian if you don't tell us what we want to know, we're going to send you to Siberia. No one will know about that you're gone. So from that point, we kind of got the, had the feeling that the Russians sort of knew that the BND was sniffing around uh, their bases. Yeah. I'd, I heard that there was one team that was shot at. A BND um, team? Sure I read it somewhere. Yeah, BND team. The only, not that I can recall. I do remember in 1991, there was there was a Bundeswehr officer who was shot at. Uh, okay, that that could have been it. That could have been it. Yeah, that was 91, very early on. He had nothing to do with what we were doing. Um, perhaps the Bundeswehr was doing something without telling anybody else, but I do remember that it was it was the Bundeswehr in 91. Right, right. And were all these teams male or was there a mixture of male and female in there? The tour people were all male. Um, over time, the Germans did increase their their staff in our Berlin office, um, operational and um, administrative staffs, and there were females uh, there. But the, the teams that did go out and drive around East Germany uh, were all male. Right. Right, right. Um, you, you're rather cryptic in in, and I'm really appreciative of the notes you sent me, Bill. But one of the one of the cryptic ones I, I quite like was friendly, cordial relations for the most part, but frictions over responsibilities <laughs> did pop up. Can you elaborate at all without causing an international incident? Uh, <laughs> yes, certainly I can. Um, in the it was hard for us because this was this had been our building where we had been in, you know for over forty years, and it was our we were in it was what 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 we did, and very slowly we saw more and more Germans come in to our building, and at some point we stopped giving um, the Germans the, a list of places to go, and they had their own staff give their teams the places to go. So very. Of course, this was the plan from the beginning. The plan was, when the agreement was reached, that the U.S. side would build down while the Germans would build up. Um, so it wasn't a surprise, but it was still, for us, a little hard to see, not lose control, but perhaps have, have to share, share control. It's just the nature of things. When, you, when you're the one, only one doing something and somebody else comes in and does it as well, you have less control of what you're doing um but no we had there were social events we had parties um christmas parties together um the germans would organize every summer a um a beer festival because they were bnd um of course the bnd was based in um in munich so there was yeah. a, strong, a strong bavarian um flavor to the BND, so they brought a lot of of, the, of those sort of sort of traditions and things to, uh, to the way they operated. But they, we had parties and events and and uh, dinners, and it was fr- it was extre- extremely friendly and and cordial. But eventually, it just came to the point where 
you know, this, this is our job. We're supposed to tell our teams what to do, you know, ask us first before you request something from our teams, that, that sort of deal, sort of the procedures. As more people came in on the German side, Germans love to be extremely organized and bureaucratic. Uh, the Americans are a little bit more or less so. So we wanted to just say, go, go, let's go do this. No, we have to follow this procedure. We have to follow, make sure Herr so-and-so was informed or Frau so-and-so um, gives her okay. And um, right. that kind of like would be, be a little hard at times. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you, you mentioned in your notes as well that U.S. staff were prohibited from going out into the East to collect intel. But you say there were exceptions. Formally, yes. Whenever we did go out to the open houses, that was an opportunity because – it was an open invitation from the Russians to anybody. So we took advantage of that situation. And, and the Germans knew that we were out there doing that. Um, but we couldn't do the old ways of, of sitting outside an installation and waiting for vehicles to pass or that kind of that, – that sort of activity we, we could not do. Yeah. But if there was an opportunity where people were invited to witness a military event – then that was that was fine, right, right. And and how were the the Russian nuclear weapons storage facilities treated? Because there must have been quite significant amounts of nuclear weaponry in uh, the former East Germany. Correct. Um, of course, they they never acknowledged that they existed, and, and they would deny that they had them. But of course, we all knew that. Um, that was a very high. A priority for our uh, – there were some people in Washington uh, who uh, were very interested in inspecting some of these installations that had been turned over. Um, so they were the ones that we would want to go into. As the Soviets, Russians, did withdraw over time, um, our B&D teams did get um, a way into some of these installations, and they would go in and, and collect trash and documents that were left over. And um, we did let our people, let some people back at um, DIA based in Washington know that, Hey, um, if you want to come in and come with us, you have an opportunity to go into a installation that had previously stored nuclear or chemical warheads and weapons. Mm -hmm. Um, So we did have some teams from Washington fly over and uh, once in a Soviet nuclear weapon storage facility had been turned over. We couldn't go in there. Uh, these guys would come in with, with tape measures and make sketches and drawings, um, take pictures up close inside. The goal of it was, I think, to compare their the analysis of what they made from overhead satellite pictures, take those same kind of pictures on the ground and look inside the bunker and assess how, how many warheads could be stored safely. Using that information, they could compare it to anywhere else in the world, North Korea, um, Iraq, um, and back in Russia, and compare overhead with on-the-ground um, on the ground measurements analysis and make a, a better, a stronger assessment of both the kind and quantity of weapons stored at at, at a, a storage facility somewhere else. Presumably, you know, from what I hear, the Soviet army 
didn't pay very well and various Soviet officers or, or troops might be willing to sell equipment or um, be open to bribery. Is that happening? Very open to, uh, to that. Eventually, over time, the focus of what we were doing kind of shifted. Initially, it was um, just collect order of battle information, find out um, what units were leaving, where they were going to back in in Russia, Um, try to collect material, try to collect equipment, whatever we could. Um, We did purchase some items from... um, Soviet officers who were more than willing to sell uh, things that they, they could get their hands on. Probably the one of the biggest items we did buy was a Soviet a T-80 tank engine. We actually did, did get an engine from someone. Uh, that, 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 it was crated up and sent back to, back to Washington or back to somewhere where it was analyzed. Um, so, yes – and once that started to happen, once we started to be able to purchase um, items of equipment um, and develop relationships with some of these officers, the focus then started to really go towards what else are you able to provide us? And it got kind of deeper into the in, into the um, human collection um, arena. No longer was it as important to get this device or that equip piece of equipment or that kit, but let's at least establish some sort of relationship um, so that a Soviet. I'm sorry. Right at, at this point, over time, uh, we we stopped seeing right, Soviet because yeah. the Soviet Union disbanded yeah. in eighty in ninety one. But of course, those of us who started in this in that we wouldn't always say Soviet, but I guess from the rest of our conversation, I sh- should say Russian. We should. You're, that's very correct. Thanks, Bill, for uh, <laughs> reminding me. I, I forgot. Um, we're showing our age, but um, yeah. And so then uh, eventually both sides talked about how we would do this in the future as the fall of, of 94 got closer and closer. Uh, the thinking was, okay, there's not going to be any more, there will no longer be any Russian military forces in East Germany. So what can we do for the future? And as we were building up the, those relationships, uh, they started to expand that and move in, in, into the document arena where we would, where our, our BND partners would request files and documents and papers things like that. Um, over time, uh, some some of our um, B&D teams were very adept at doing that. Um, so they would employ some of the traditional human intelligence methods of starting starting a relationship with a, with a source, meeting them at a, at a ghost house or a restaurant or a bar, having that meeting um, recorded or else photographed from a distance. I did see occasionally photographs of 
of our, our B&D teams with, an, uh, with a Russian officer at a restaurant or a bar. The goal of that was obviously to bring him deeper and deeper into our net, basically. Yeah. Um, that was the long-term goal eventually. So it became more of that sort of work and less of, you know, what, 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 what sort of kit um, do you have for us? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it, it's interesting because it makes you wonder how some of those sources that might have been recruited during that period then rose to perhaps higher levels within uh, the Russian army in future decades. That Exactly. If you, if you bring in or deal with a Russian lieutenant or captain in 1993 or four in Germany, that lieutenant or captain 20 years later would be a major or a colonel uh, somewhere else. And that major yeah. or colonel, or even later on a general, the last thing he wants is to get a knock on the door or a phone call from his old friend um, Fritz from uh, Wunsdorf, Germany, uh, saying, hey, um, general, this is your old friend Fritz. Remember me? Uh, no, I don't remember yeah. you. Well, actually, I have these, these pictures of us having dinner at a restaurant in uh, Wunsdorf from 1993. And remember those papers that you, you gave me about your unit deployment? You know, um, I think that was what we're, we were working towards uh, at that point. Right, right. So long-term penetration. Yes. Was this information also being shared with the CIA? Uh, yes, yes, yes. Okay. So Aldrich Ames was still in position, wasn't he, until – 93 was it he was he i know exactly when it happened because i was in washington when it happened he was arrested in january or february 94 okay and and so presumably perhaps some of these sources had been betrayed by his treachery in theory possibly yes i i'm just sort of like thinking through you know, all of this stuff's being shared with the Americans and perhaps it crosses Ames's desk and he's going straight to the FSB as well. I don't know for sure. I do know that the kind of information that we were getting was shared. Because, I mean, there was that recent case, I think, with somebody who was quite close to Putin who was pulled out, who had apparently had been working for decades for... Uh, the CIA, and uh, they were worried that uh, Trump might have inadvertently, you know, blurted out that they had a source or or something like that. Anyway, fascinating stuff. Those those deep penetration agents. We better not veer too far onto contemporary politics. <laughs> I think it's always always safe to stay in the Cold War. I find <laughs> it was much more black and white. And we have further photos, videos, and information on this episode in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Don't forget, if you'd like to get one of those Cold War Conversations coasters, help keep us on the air, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. And if you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group, where listeners just like you continue 
the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.